at one point I was sort of struck by the, it's almost like the Kevin Cosner baseball movie, you know, Field of Dreams. So you build it, they will come. They've cut down the field and instead of building a baseball field, they've built a data center. This is David Nielsen. So my full name is uh, David Nielsen and my title is Group Leader for Optical Transmission in Bell Labs. For the last 22 years, David has studied light. You can't see or taste or feel the subatomic photons that make up light. But that hasn't stopped this particle from redefining what it means to be human. Starting with fire, then agriculture, and the light bulb. And now, in the last couple decades, light has reshaped our assumptions about the power of the internet. Its impact can be seen across the rural world. Where fields of grain once stood, now exist these massive shrines to the internet, cloud data centers. Google has this site in Iowa, and it's something of the order of 300 acres that they've used so far. They have three times that, and they're building multi-story data centers there. So it's a massive scale. And equally impressive are the tiny, hair-like threads that glue the cloud together. Optical fiber networks. To some extent, optics is everywhere today, but we all know what today feels like. Marcus Weldon is the president of Nokia Bell Labs and corporate CTO of Nokia. Like David, he sees the pairing of optical fiber and the cloud as the key to unlocking a new era of the Internet. So, how do we get there? And what's waiting for us when we do? Optics will be the fabric of the cloud in brand new ways, both in edge cloud architectures, but also in all optical architectures that will allow humans to remotely interact across larger distances, as we've all learned to do with COVID-19. And that's the future of optics. Optics will enable that. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. Today, how a breakthrough from the 70s could bring Star Trek to the future. This episode is, If You Build It, They Will Cloud. Well, let's start. Um, as I said, I'm going to ask some questions. And Max When David and I spoke on a video call, we started with his career just before he joined Bell Labs. So there, there's one moment that actually goes back to yeah, 1993. So the, I, I, and this one conversation he had with an old boss about what people were going to do with these newfound optical fiber networks. And we were sort of going, you know, there's a lot of sort of discussions about, you know, what's the future application of all this bandwidth. Because it was becoming clear then, at the dawn of the digital age, that people's appetite for bandwidth was going to be massive and that old copper cables may not be up to the task. So David and his boss wondered, what about optical fiber? And the idea is you take a piece of silica fiber, which is the width of a human hair, and you put it down. These the thin glass so strands had been around since the 70s. And later on, engineers realized that you could bury them underground ideally between cities, and shine light down them to transport data at rates close to the speed of light. And with the help of something called an optical amplifier, you could do this across oceans and continents. 
these optical amplifiers existed. And but in 1993, the picture was still a little fuzzy. The future, and it was like, well, what's it going to be used for? And and the sort of default picture at that point was, oh, it's going to be for video, for television, for something like that. And I, the strange thing was, just around that time, just shortly after that discussion, the the World Wide Web became much, much more visible. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Uh, I remember working on supercomputer infrastructure, vaxes and thinking machines in university uh, 30 years ago. Marcus especially sees this moment as an inflection point. Because up until this point, the story of the internet was written by scientists and researchers and the narrow slice of the world that lives in the ivory tower. An average web post in 1993 might be someone trying to disprove one of Einstein's theories. And then this changed overnight. Everyone started using the internet. Computers invaded practically every home in the developed world. We started with a, a fiber, with a single core and a single wavelength running down that. Then it, to increase the capacity, we kept the fiber, we kept the core, a little bit of the fiber that guides the light, and added more and more wavelengths up to 100. And I think it, the limit is, could be 188 wavelengths uh, along that fiber. And it's still the same fiber. Each of these wavelengths can carry a unique signal over a single fiber. But why stop at one? Why not deploy tens or hundreds or thousands of fibers? As we move to using parallel fibers, and you know the, these are used today, people have parallel fiber interconnects between some of their large data centers, then you start to say, well, do I need to separate um, traffic by wavelength, or can I simply move to separate traffic going to different destinations by which fiber it's on? At one point, people measured their internet speed in kilobytes. Now, some data centers project that they'll achieve terabyte speeds within our lifetime. That's a billion-fold increase. Very often, people see it in this abstract sense. And this explosion in optical fiber data rates has enabled another internet-related breakthrough. It's this sort of nebulous structure out there somewhere where their data goes. But to me, you know, there's, there's a physical instantiation. And, you know, the first thing people might think of are data centers. You had a big room, but the room was maybe the size of, uh, you know, a third of a football field and everything was liquid nitrogen cooled so that it didn't overheat. The original data centers were used for things like research and calculations. And they were tiny compared to the centers that have since sprouted up in Germany, the UK, China, Brazil, Iowa and Oregon. And now the equivalent of that is uh, football or soccer fields with not just one story, but multiple stories. It's really been a phenomenal transformation in computing and networking, and they've gone hand in hand, which is uh, to create this cloud network revolution that we've all benefited from uh, over the COVID era. And of, of course, it's going to just continue because it is the more efficient way to work if I can access everything I need at every point in time in just the way I want it. When you think about all the research and the work you're doing when it comes to optical networks and the cloud. At this point in the call, our producer Max jumped in with a point that I think really gets to the heart of David's work. 
Optical Fiber and the cloud have been riding this roller coaster of growth, and the obviousness of their pairing is second only to yin and yang. As a result, we've seen the rise of gigabit internet speeds, and streaming, an impossibility in 1993, is now a multi-billion dollar industry. But what about tomorrow? What is the future of the cloud network, and why is it important that we get there? Does anything come to mind for you as to, like, what is at stake in this development? What is at stake if we don't develop this or if we do develop this? I mean, I think we would all agree that it's remarkable what we can do at a distance and how it's helped us through this current environment. But I think if we, we will all admit that these systems are not as good as we need them to be. It doesn't feel like being there in person yet. You can feel that divide when a Zoom call freezes or when a video game skips a frame. We expect technology to be clumsy, and that's the way it often turns out. And that, that's what the future will be like if we don't innovate in optics, because optics will be the enabling fabric of that new remote but resonant, you know, really feeling like you are there, that your touch feels like you're touching the thing there, you're... Visual and audio perception feels like you're there. Your interaction with other humans feel like you're there. That'll all require an optical fabric with this very low latency, very adaptive uh, control plane. Or the future could be... Robots in your home. Again, David. I mean, people have robots in their home today. They have their Roombas and things. But I think we're going to want to have more of these things around us not just our home, but our office and various other places. And the challenge with robots is that they need to be smart, but carrying around a big brain, a big processor is hard. You know, you've got mobility and things, so you need computation. In order for this robot-filled future to take shape, David says our notion of what a data center is will have to change. This sort of simple picture of, of big big buildings and big steel, I think, is is going to have to adapt. I mean, they build these huge data centers in fields in the Midwest, you know, Iowa being quite a popular one, because they have open land, they have power cables running there, they have, actually, they have fiber optic cables running through these sites already. But what if you don't have these things? You can start by looking inward at all the switchboards and server racks that make up a data center. Surely there's some improvements to be done on the hardware side. But there's also location, where we put data centers and how that improves our computing power. With the, what people are talking about with the edge is people are talking about sort of dynamic systems, things that... This is that when we land on something called an edge data center, so again, or what David calls the future uh, edge. To Netflix. I think what we're talking about with the future edge is, is to actually have the computation happen close to you so that things that actually require the computer to more than serve data to figure stuff out will be in your neighborhood because it can have a low latency. These satellite facilities could bring the power of a data center into our backyards, making apps, services, and the brains of David's robots instantly available to our every command. We don't know exactly you know, how close to the edge we're going to get, but maybe they will reuse the malls that are being emptied because we're buying online. You know, maybe those will become the future edge data centers. 
This translates to less lag, seamless animations, and creating a feeling of true reality on the internet. And by doing this, we could, as Marcus suggests, bring teachers, doctors, and therapists into our homes remotely with a newfound sense of intimacy. So if I can optimally connect my remote expert to the critical system using the lowest possible latency, uh, that should be the optimal way for the world to be. And, And think of it humanistically. You want the best person to help with a problem to be most intimately and optimally connected to the problem. And in that way, the world uh, can be more efficient. Would you agree? Yeah. And I mean, that then creates the challenge that uh, in a sense that we want to be able to create the lowest latency links over very long distances as well. Which is a hard problem because of the speed of light comes back into the equation quite fully then. Yes. You're not going to get around that from a pure latency point of view, but trying to build a connection that runs to the other side of the world that is only limited by the speed of light would be a challenge today. Earlier, I mentioned an internal approach to the future cloud, one in which web-scale companies, which own the cloud infrastructure, redesign their servers and hardware to optimize data rates. But yes, I mean, the idea of, of the internet is to think of it as a... David says we've been trending in this direction since the birth of the Internet. Speeds have increased, usership is through the roof, and the pairing of the cloud and optics has ushered in a new era of connectivity. And now we're starting to see another change. One of my colleagues, T.V. Leichman, and I often have discussions, and our sense is that what we think of as that public Internet is disappearing, and that there are these multiple private networks coming into existence. These private networks, owned and operated by web-scale companies, have gotten so large that, according to David, they control about 99% of the traffic on the Internet. I mean, this exists in different ways. I mean, these the use of their facilities for running your email or your meetings or things where you're committing you know, a sort of service level but it's also occurring at a physical infrastructure level that probably more of the global connectivity bandwidth now passes through these. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have, without realizing it, moved from a more public internet into a series of private networks. This sounds ominous, but it's not entirely without benefit. Like when it comes to optimizing servers as Marcus points out. And they each can control the path using their own intelligent control methods and mechanisms. And what you were saying is the web scales pay a lot of attention to understanding all the elements along the path in order to optimize that. Yeah. And I mean, there are examples of things that they're they're trying to do in that space with the you know, trying to do gaming in the cloud, where they have tried to create the sort of impression of the gaming machine being right there for you when you don't have to have the hardware sitting on your desk. As with anything, the impact will depend on your use of the cloud. If you want to set up a new application or service that, you know, internet-based service, you can go to somebody, one of the cloud providers, you can get servers and, and data connections in their cloud without actually having to worry about building that hardware yourself. And if your business takes off and scales, 
they will provide you the sort of capability to rapidly scale that up because you're a small percentage of their business. So you can very quickly become a significant business and build that. The downside, of course, is that you don't really own that infrastructure. You don't have some of the options that may exist, and you may get yourself tied into somebody else's business. After talking about the cloud, optics, and the future of the Internet, Max had one last question for David and Marcus. If we were to have these you know, fully integrated optical networks that have this low lag, what do you think would be possible in the future if you could just dream big? It doesn't have to actually be you know, a concept today, but if you were just to dream, what would you say would be possible? I'll go back to my dream of robots everywhere. I mean, I think... As David again discussed ubiquitous robots, Marcus took us down a different path. So I think that's the dream, is that we'll have these smart, intelligent robots serving us, but their brains will be off in the cloud. And just out of interest, David, what would they be serving you? Oh, probably a pan-galactic gargle blaster, but that's another... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like David's answer, but I will go with a version... Of, that's not robotic, actually, the Star Trek holodeck will be a reality. And if you think about the holodeck, it was uh, this perfect experience that was virtually created but was deeply resonant, and you felt like you were touching the objects and the people in this room. But the difference will be you won't have to enter a special room on a starship. We will all have a holodeck experience using the interfaces and screens and walls and windows projecting or direct retinal projection, all enabled by the optical fabric of the future. Basically, we want Star Trek. We want Star Trek, and optics is the way. For more information on today's topics, please check out our show notes. If you like this episode of Future Human, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts so new listeners can find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was executive produced and narrated by me, Sandy Smolens, for audiation. Our producer and writer is Max Wasserman. The show was recorded and mixed at Audiation Studios at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble who also composed the theme music with me. Audiation.